Hello, and welcome to Across the States. I'm your host, Matt Fisher, and joining me today are Carla Jones, Senior Director of the Federalism and International Relations Task Force, and special guest, the Senior Research Fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, Wei Fong Zhang. Welcome, guys, to the show. How are you doing today? Very good. Thanks for having me. Thank you for putting this together, Matt. I'm looking forward to this, guys. I've been looking forward to this discussion for a while. We're going to talk about can China be the world's dominant economic power going into the 21st century? China's been in the news a lot. So let's kick it off with our first question of the day. Over the last two decades, China has gone from a lucrative market for American businesses and consumers to now posing a serious challenge to the American-led liberal world order. Now, just looking at this problem that now poses against our country, what went wrong over the last two decades? How did we get here? From the year 2000, a new millennium opportunity to all of a sudden now we're looking at perhaps the beginning of a second Cold War between us and China. Matt, uh, I think that's a great question. And I think this is a question that many of us are asking ourselves in recent years when threats from China are becoming more and more serious. But if we look back to 20 years ago when China was first joining the WTO, I think the expectations were very different from what we are thinking today. Because people back then were very optimistic. There are a lot of potential commercial interests involved because American businesses and consumers could benefit from the better trade relations with China tremendously. And there were also high hopes that perhaps allowing China to join or be integrated into the world economy, that the Chinese people would enjoy more economic freedom and perhaps even more political freedom. So China may even become a liberal democracy. I think there were a lot of uh, optimistic hopes on that. And I I also wanted to emphasize that that's true on both sides, because I can remember very vividly when uh, I first went to college. I grew up in China. And when I was in college, it was the time when China first joined the WTO, only a couple of years later. And I remember that when the Chinese negotiators, at some point, they came to Washington to uh, negotiate with the Clinton administration on terms on... um, under which China would join the WTO. And when they went back home, they faced a tremendous opposition from people who were saying that that would actually giving away, uh, would be giving away too much interest, national interest to the Western democracies because the Chinese people think that we might actually lose our way of life. I think the expectations were on both sides that China eventually might be integrated into the Western institutions. And so what turned out to be very very much not true was that the opposite was happening because all these Chinese behavior that so concerning us today, they were actually part of the process in which the Chinese institutional characteristics were even more enhanced as China was more integrated into the global economy. And not only in practice, I also wanted to point out that even in the academic thoughts, like in the economic research, there was also a long-held belief that this kind of trade liberalizations would also lead to institutional convergence, meaning that when China, like exactly like what I just described, when China joined uh, the global economy, institutions would, would be more looking like the Western. That's an academic belief. And it's only until very recent years that more recent economic research started to show that that's actually not, not the case, even at the theoretical level. So I think... Um, this is a widely held belief that turned out to be not true, and we are we are only realizing that in very recent years. Thank you, Wei Fang, for taking the time to speak with us today. 
I know our members have learned so much from your presentations to the Federalism and International Relations Task Force, as well as from the podcast you recorded last spring. And China's assertiveness is uppermost in their minds right now and has been for a while. Can you give us some examples of how integrating China into the global economy has emboldened or facilitated the Chinese behavior that we're so concerned about today? Yeah, I actually wrote about that in the commentary recently. And I think by the time this episode goes live, uh, the piece will have probably published in the Discourse magazine, in which I, I sort of lay out a few examples where these kind of Chinese practices or Chinese behavior that we consider concerning, they were actually becoming stronger. And I can name a few, for example, forced labor, especially now in the Uyghur region of Xinjiang, is over the news these days. But forced labor actually was uh, in China for a long time. It started not long after the People's Republic regime, People's Republic of China, was uh, started in 1949. And a few years later, forced labor camps uh, started to exist. But at the beginning, they were primarily for several categories like uh, political dissidents and regular criminals. But later, there's this uh, religious movement called uh, Falun Gong, uh, where it became more and more popular, I think, too close to comfort for the Chinese government. And so a lot of practitioners were thrown in uh, labor camps later on. And practices like this, putting uh, people, uh, political dissidents into labor camps, became a more, more and more profitable ideas after China joined the WTO because they represent a lot of uh, commercial interests, so to speak, because they are forced to work in, in labor camps on industries at a very low wage or virtually no wage at all. And then the products were sold to all these uh, European countries, the U.S. and uh, on the global economy. And obviously now we have this uh, the Uyghur forced labor. That's the even worse issue. But we, we are only coming to realize this. But the trend of increasingly using forced labor was started after China joined the WTO. Another example is the state-owned enterprises. In fact, I run a research program at the Mercatus Center uh, it's called a policy change index, where we try to track Chinese propaganda and see whether we can uh, detect change in language in the Chinese propaganda. And that matters because oftentimes before the Chinese government changes its policies, they would change what they say in the national newspapers first. And the purpose was to change people's mind about certain subjects. And what we detected was that just a few years after China joined the WTO around 2004, China started to change the tone about how they talk about state-owned enterprises. It used to be that state-owned enterprises are something that we need to reform. We need to privatize them because we want to be more integrated into the global economy, where we want uh, market reforms, we want private enterprises rather than state-owned enterprises. But in 2004, they started to say, that's probably not a problem, as, you know, national champions or all these big tech companies that we see today. They are all born out of the state-owned enterprises system and a direct or indirect explicit or implicit support from the government to grow faster and become a major player on a global market. So all those changes actually followed not long after China joined the WTO. So all these changes, I think, when we think about China being integrated into, into the global economy, what we understand from trade is that when the country is joining a global trade system, they will specialize in what they do the best, right? And what China does the best is to catch up in various ways, using cheap labor and uh, utilizing state support for state-owned enterprises. 
And all these practices became even more important because that generates comparative advantage to the Chinese economy. So I think that that's the key to the problem. So it sounds to me like the United States and other liberal democracies miscalculated when we ignored human rights violations, threats to Hong Kong's and Taiwan's sovereignty, and China's co-opting of nations around the globe from Pakistan to much of the African continent. Would you agree that that was a miscalculation on our part? I would agree. And I think part of it was that we were expecting something very different. We were expecting a very rosy scenario. So all these episodes we are seeing, including, for example, China crushing freedom or democracy movement in Hong Kong, it didn't start in recent couple of years. It started basically as soon as after the handover in 1997. Because at the beginning, the China did have a policy of not intervening in affairs in Hong Kong, but they very quickly changed that. Now, the United States and its allies, when they saw these uh, changes, there was a slippery slope reasoning that we were not paying enough attention to because that was already the beginning. But we sort of viewed it as an isolated event. Yeah, maybe it just happened in Hong Kong. And then when it, when it came to the Chinese government putting economic pressures on Taiwan, then we think maybe that's just happening to Taiwan. And so I think now it's time for U.S. policymakers to change the mindset because I don't think policymakers are paying attention to what's happening in Hong Kong or Taiwan in all these uh, key allies of the United States. I think policymakers, they are not paying enough attention than they what uh, they should be because Hong Kong is extremely important because that's actually the very first time the Chinese government had to infiltrate a system that's very different from their own system. Because Hong Kong used to have a system that's very much like the British system, right? And so the Chinese government couldn't just change the institutions in Hong Kong like it did in any other province in, in mainland China. They had to use a way that's more uh, subtle. And I think policymakers in the US, they're not watching how that unfold closely enough because that's actually the playbook that will be repeated over and over again when China starts to infiltrate other societies as well. So I think there's a sense in which all these developments overseas are not being emphasized or being considered seriously enough in Washington. So with that in mind, you know, you mentioned a minute ago how 20 years ago, most of the Western world had the idea that, as you put it, liberalization can lead to institutional convergence. And of, of course, we have not seen that happen. Now, I think a lot of the thought process at the time was that we have the international institutions in place, the World Trade Organization and others, that can keep China in line as that convergence eventually happens. But are these international institutions like the WTO actually equipped to hold China accountable for trade violations and whatnot? I think we can say that there were some rules and institutions in place that were for potentially a player joining the WTO, for example, and not following all the rules that it was supposed to follow. But the problem is that when it comes to unforeseen scenarios, there's only so many ways you could imagine before China rose to the global stage, how many ways China could violate those rules, right? And so I would argue that the, the WTO rules back in the days when they were imagining or designing those institutions, they didn't uh, think hard enough, or maybe it's virtually impossible to think hard enough, various ways that the potential competitors like China joining it and not following all its rules. And so I think in this sense, international organizations, they fail 
because they they just couldn't incorporate this uh, highly unlikely, according to expectations back then, a highly unlikely scenario of its rules being broken in various ways. And sometimes uh, some may argue that China was not explicitly breaking some of the uh, WTO rules because maybe they were just working around those rules so that they are impractically violating the rules, but it's very hard to hold them accountable. Mm. So I think that the problem is that when we think about international organizations, and there's a lot of problems uh, when it comes to making rules in international organizations because you're working with so many nations and uh, no single nation is fully responsible for what will happen in the future. And so there's a lot of collective action problems or failure on that front as well. So with that in mind, where do we go from here? What's the road ahead look like because of the last 20 years now and China's more aggressive stance across the board? Will we see Beijing and China surpass the United States and dominate the global economy going forward? That's a very important question. And I would say that that's a $1.8 trillion question in light of the president's speech uh, just the other day. Because his plan was to propose a $1.8 trillion American families plan ostensibly motivated by the China's rise and the threat from China's rise, right? And so the president's uh, talking point was that, you know, China's growing so fast and we're not doing so well. There are so many problems in America. So we need to invest all this money to get us ahead. But I'm not quite sure that would put America in a more competitive position because we really need to think about what led to China's rise and how the U.S. could get ahead even faster to head off that challenge. And that, I think that the technology front is the most important element in this whole debate. And we we really need to ask how science and technology advance. And on that, I would like to refer to the famous sociologist Robert Merton, who interestingly coined the term multiples, because in the history of science and technology, there are sometimes very important groundbreaking discoveries that seem to be made by multiple scientists, more or less at the same time and independently. For example, oxygen was discovered by multiple scientists around the same time. And the theory of evolution was also uh, discovered by uh, multiple scientists at the same time. In fact, there's a medical journal who basically had a routine of publishing simultaneous submission on similar subject at the same time. And they very cleverly call it two of a kind, not one of a kind. And I brought this up because this is very interesting because there are many scientists and sociologists trying to explain how we just have so many groundbreaking discoveries made by multiple people around the same time. What's causing it? And some were saying that this is basically a coincidence. But it seems to be too easy to be coincident to have so many important discoveries happen that way. And so there's an alternative theory, which I think has a profound implication on U.S.-China competition. And that theory was that it's all because of communication. In the old days, we have so many simultaneous discoveries because scientists, they just don't know what their peers is doing at the same time. It takes forever to learn another scientist across the globe what research they're up to. Nowadays, we just Google, right? And so the implication is that when uh, communications, especially with the internet, when communications improves, we will see less and less frequent simultaneous discoveries. And that's very important because when it comes to US-China competition, it really comes down to who can know what the other nation is up to in a very timely manner in terms of science and technology. And now if you look at China, that's where I was born and raised. 
And I can attest to the fact that the entire education system in China is geared toward learning from America. And when it comes to the, uh, the area of AI, for example, there's a very important difference between the US and China in terms of language, because there are a lot more AI researchers in China who can read English publications in AI than American scientists who work on AI who can read Chinese publication in China in the same subject, right? And so I think there's an asymmetry where Chinese scientists, it's much easier for Chinese scientists to learn what the U.S. is up to than the other way around. And I think that's a concerning trend that uh, we are not paying enough attention to as well. And so where we go from here, it really comes down to whether we can really advance our science and technology at a pace faster than China could catch up. We should not imitate China's strategy because China's strategy, it's all geared toward catching up with the U.S. But what U.S. should do is try to explore more frontiers to make it even harder for China to catch up with us. What other things should U.S. policymakers be doing in terms of countering China? And do our allies, like I'm thinking of Biden's quad consisting of Australia, India, Japan, and the United States, and also allies like Taiwan, do they have a role in the process? Yeah, I, I think there are many important fronts the U.S. should tackle to counter the China challenge. Carla, you refer to all these important key allies the U.S. has. I think the U.S., on, for example, on Taiwan, the U.S. should pursue a much closer economic relations with Taiwan than they already did. Because Taiwan is basically in the, in the middle, in the forefront of the U.S.-China tension. And not to mention that Taiwan is home to I think one of the most successful and most important semiconductor manufacturer in the world, TSMC. And that's very important because semiconductor industry, if we go back to the strategy which China succeeded, was that China was trying to imitate what the U.S. is doing and reverse engineering all kinds of legal and illegal ways to catch up in technology and cyber espionage. All these They work very, perhaps they work very well in other technology sectors, but they don't work very well in semiconductor industries because semiconductor chips is very hard to reverse engineer. You can buy as many chips as you want from Taiwan, take them apart, look at the inside. But if you don't have the technology to manufacture something so tiny, then it's useless to take them apart and know what what it looks like inside, right? But for other things, it might work very well. And so I think Taiwan is strategically a very important place where I think the U.S. should build a stronger economic relations rather than maintaining currently the strategic ambiguity of whether we would defend Taiwan, we are not going to say it, or whether we are, we are going to have a free trade agreement with Taiwan, we don't know, and we'll play by ear. I think maintaining this strategy is not going to be wise going forward. So we should have more clarity with respect to our alliance with Taiwan. And having a bilateral trade agreement, for example, would send a strong signal to China that we take Taiwan's sovereignty seriously. And also, could Taiwan be helpful in terms of Chinese language training in the way that Confucius Institutes that are slowly being defunded now are doing? You mean Taiwan providing the language training to the United States and its allies? Right. Right now, what's happening is Chinese nationals are providing that training. And the states are defunding a lot of those Confucius Institutes. And I'm wondering if Taiwan might be helpful in terms of providing that training instead of 
PRC nationals? I think that that would be an interesting strategy. But I think overall, adding strategic clarity on the issue of Taiwan would be very important to the U.S. because it all comes down to expectations, right? All comes down to how important strategically Taiwan is to China. And one can argue that 10 years ago, 20 years ago, Taiwan was important to China, but not as important as it is now, simply because of the rising importance of the semiconductor industry. Taiwan didn't used to be the center of or the manufacturing, a key manufacturer of the semiconductor industry. But now Taiwan is basically like the Middle East. We think about semiconductor as like crude oil, right? And so the, with the rising importance of Taiwan, the same ambiguity the U.S. had would not be enough to deter China from being more aggressive on Taiwan. So as the importance of Taiwan increases, the U.S. should add more clarity and reduce the ambiguity to, to be consistent at the level of importance Taiwan is uh, or deserves now. So I think that that's going to be a more important in terms of the uh, over, overall gesture when it comes to uh, U.S. and Taiwan relations. And the last question on Taiwan, are there things that we could be doing strategically? Yes, the bilateral trade agreement, that's the economic aspect. Is there something that we could be doing strategically that could send a strong signal to China? I think one might argue, now I'm, I'm not a military expert, but one might argue that arms sales to Taiwan would be a very effective way to send strong signals to China. And I, I think a lot of times it comes down to, when it comes to foreign policies, it has a lot of profound effect in affecting what China views the U.S. policies would be, right? So, for example, even just regular visits between officials in between Taiwan and the, and the U.S. would be an important uh, signal to the Chinese as well. Um, I actually have research tracking how the Chinese propaganda views U.S.-Taiwan relations and when it comes to visits, for example, the Chinese government got very worked up every time there are Taiwanese officials coming to the U.S. and U.S. officials going to China, too. And so if you do that less and less frequently, the Chinese uh, propaganda machine is watching. We know that they have been watching for decades how closely these officials are traveling in, in between two places. And so if you are doing that less frequently, it's already sending a signal to the Chinese government, regardless of what else you are doing or not doing. So I think the, the posture or forming of expectations is hugely important. Well, Alec has model policy in just about everything you've mentioned, from the Taiwan Travel Act to a bilateral trade agreement to the Taiwan Relations Act. We have model policy supporting all of that. The next questions I wanted to ask have to do with getting an understanding of the landscape in China. How do the Chinese people view what's going on? How do they view China's economic successes? Are they satisfied with the rate of progress, economic progress and social mobility? And do they support what their government is doing? That's a very important question. In fact, that gets to the reason why much of my research is devoted to monitoring Chinese propaganda. And I'll tell you a personal story. So I was born and raised in China until I finished college. And the first time I left mainland China was uh, when I went to graduate school in Hong Kong, which is just one river away from uh, mainland China, right? But what is so shocking to me was that once I got to Hong Kong and to the university and, and I went into the library, I stumbled across a, a bookshelf 
which totally shocked me because the entire bookshelf was devoted to the Tiananmen Square Massacre. And so I looked at those books and I said, wait a second. According to what I learned in Chinese propaganda, nobody died in Tiananmen Square. What are you talking about? Massacre. So I, I borrowed those books. I watched documentaries. And that's when I learned that uh, what happened in 1989. I thought growing up in China, I was one of those more open-minded people. How come I didn't know this in over 20 years living in China? And what it says to me was how effective propaganda was when I was living in China. I had no idea. Now, and I bet if you ask a regular random, you, you catch anyone walking on the street in China and ask whether they know what's happening in Hong Kong or what's happening in Xinjiang, I bet they wouldn't know. They wouldn't know what's the, the, the Uyghur genocide, there's all these atrocities happening there. And so what they could see was really economic success in China. They knew about the pandemic. Yes, that's terrible. But now what they are seeing is the vaccine diplomacy, right? China is sending vaccines overseas to all these African countries. And then they can pride themselves by saying that China is not only the largest producer of vaccines, China is the largest exporter of vaccines. And the U.S. hasn't done much in exporting vaccines to all these developing countries. And so there's a lot of uh, positive things that the Chinese regime could use to justify to their people where the propaganda machine of the Chinese government is covering the negative part. And so that's why I think the Chinese government and the Chinese president himself is tremendously uh, popular within China. And so we should not lose sight of the fact that we on the outside could see everything, but people inside China, perhaps they could only see half of it. Before we go, a quick message from Alec concerning an exciting event coming this summer, happens every year, a quick message courtesy of Alec. This July, join the American Legislative Exchange Council for its annual meeting in beautiful Salt Lake City. Join fellow thought leaders, listen to exciting speakers, and take part in building a better future for America. For more information and to register, go to alec.org slash Salt Lake. We'll see you in person in Utah. And the last question I have is the party worried about China's demographic challenges, an aging population falling population replacement rates. Are they concerned about that? I think they seem to be concerned and simply from the fact that several years ago, they relaxed the one-child policy to then a two-child policy. I was a product of one-child policy. In fact, the year I was born was the year the one-child policy was first implemented in the area that I grew up in. And 20 years later, they realized that's a problem because they're just not having enough children. But the problem now is that even when you relax the policy, cost of living has been so high that there are, uh, people are not having enough children, even given the freedom. And so I think decades down the road, that will create a lot of pressure to the Chinese economy, especially the, in particular the social security system. And so all this is to say that there are so many moving parts in, in terms of the future of the Chinese economy. There are a lot of uh, institutional features that could help further propel the Chinese economy. But there's also much longer trends like demographic challenges that would pose problems that the Chinese government cannot avoid. And so I, I think only time will tell how, how important that factor would hinder the Chinese economy going forward. And probably it would take another 10 or 20 years to see how much a burden the social security system is putting on the Chinese economy. Thank you, Wei Fang, and we look forward to hosting you at future Federalism and International Relations Task Force events. 
Thank you so much for having me. Matt? Yes, thank you, Carla. Thank you, Wei-Fung. A fantastic episode today discussing some major challenges that are facing the United States and the world going forward. Again, you're listening to Across the States. Thank you for tuning in and be sure to tune in again later on for more policy discussions. Thank you for listening to Across the States, the leading state-focused policy podcast presented by the American Legislative Exchange Council, the premier free market organization of and for legislators. To learn more about our work or to make a tax-deductible donation, visit alec.org. Tell us what you think on Facebook and Twitter at Alec States. The views and opinions expressed on Across the States are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the American Legislative Exchange Council.